Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring dreams and psychic dreams. With me is my friend Lloyd Auerbach, who is a parapsychologist. He has his master's degree in parapsychology from John F. Kennedy University. He is the author of several books, including Psychic Dreaming, Mind Over Matter, ESP, Hauntings and Poltergeists, A Paranormal Casebook, Ghost Hunting in the New Millennium, and he is also the co-author with Ed May, Joe McMonagall, and Victor Rubel of ESP Wars East and West. He's on the board of directors of the Rhine Research Center in Durham, North Carolina, where he also teaches online parapsychology courses. In addition, he's a past president of the Psychic Entertainers Association. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Lloyd. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to see you again. And we'll be talking about dreams and psychic dreams. And I guess it's important in order to really get a handle on psychic dreams to pay a little attention to what is a normal dream? Well, that's a really good question. And I don't know if it's an easy one to answer. Uh, you know, we could talk about normal dreams as the normal course of sleep because everybody dreams every night through the various sleep cycles we have. In fact, it's been shown that if people are sleep deprived for a certain number, certain number of hours, you might have a psychotic break. So dreaming is a very positive thing. But within the world of, of neuroscience and psychology and folks who study dreams from all angles, there's no consensus. This is kind of like consciousness. Uh, some folks on the very materialistic very mechanistic side of the brain, uh, people like Francis Crick, one of the discoverers of DNA, actually believe that remembering your dreams is bad, that, that what happens in our brains at night is kind of like defragging your computer. It's getting rid of the garbage and the junk. And remembering or putting emphasis on that is bad in the long run. And yet, on the other side, we have so much from the anthropological literature and absolutely from the psychological literature uh, and from people's practical experience, that remembering your dreams and working with them is a positive thing. Mm. So who do you believe at this point? Well, I think it's fair to say that Sigmund Freud uh, was one of the most influential people of the uh, last century. Uh, I rank him amongst the half dozen most influential thinkers of the 20th century. And uh, I believe uh, he once said, a dream uninterpreted is like a letter unopened. He, he felt that every dream contained meaning. Yeah. And, you know, it's and the meaning might not be anything exciting. It could be very mundane. We we certainly have dreams about situations that happen during the day, kind of day residue that sticks with us. But we have a lot of metaphor. I mean, this is really a time for our unconscious minds to play for all of the fetters of society and all our inhibitions to drop, which is a good thing because that allows for psychic dreaming. And it also is, is something you can play with a little bit. Uh, even the ancient Egyptians knew that you could incubate or play with your dreams or program yourself 
for certain kinds of dreams or to, to deal with decisions in your dreams. So this is not a new thing. It's just an exciting thing. Well, speaking of the ancient Egyptians, I, I recall visiting the Sphinx uh, and, and the Giza Plateau, and there uh, is a stella, a big stone uh, carving by the Sphinx that was uh, made thousands of years ago by an Egyptian uh, pharaoh who was riding uh, in the desert and decided to uh, sleep. And, and that night he had a dream. And in the dream, the Sphinx spoke to him and said, hey, I'm buried here. Dig dig, and you'll find me. And he did. He excavated uh, the Sphinx and uh, wrote that stella and had it in engraved in stone to commemorate the significance of that dream. Yeah, that might have been one of the first historically recorded psychic dreams that we have access to. Um, Certainly, we have literature going back that far about interpreting dreams, but not something specific to psychic dreams. Let's just say a dream could mean many things offhand. It could be an expression of of unconscious emotions. It could be a metaphorical interpretation of of some event in one's life. It could be part of a creative process. If if you, I get sometimes dreams that are like movie scripts. Yeah, and actually, even scientists have admitted to having dreams. Uh, that have inspired them or given them the solution to problems. Uh, Kekula, who came up with the the benzene ring, had a dream about a hexagonal snake, snake that was biting its own tail, and that was the key to understanding the molecular structure of benzene. So there are many examples, actually, in science of people who had dreams that were creative, but intuitive, that spoke to them in a way that it allowed them to solve problems. Now, in reading your book on psychic dreaming, I came across a really striking event that you were in, in the um, skyscraper in San Francisco, 101 California Street, when there there was a terrible attack. A gunman came in and killed many people. It, I lived in San Francisco at the time. It was all over the news. And you reported many of the people in that building uh, had dreams as a result of that horrible experience. Uh, You know, trauma affects us in a very negative way, um, but it also, our dreams are a way for us to work through our issues, our traumatic problems. Uh, I I don't think there's enough emphasis placed on the use of dreams as a tool to work through trauma and grief. Uh, Because there, for example, on the grief side, you have people who talk about having a relative, a very close relative or a loved one who dies and they have a dream about having a conversation, having the, the goodbye conversation in their dream. And it's possible that that person was doing a little visit. Maybe it was an apparitional experience in the dream state. But it's just as likely that this was their unconscious way of working through unsaid material, thing, unsaid communication and emotional context. Because those people who wake up from this, while they are still trying to figure out if it really was their grandfather or not, they feel a grief relief from it. There is a process that happens. Well, I, I know that in the 19th century, uh, the study of dreams was important in the uh, early days of the Society for Psychical Research. They were very interested in people's spontaneous dreams uh, that might be of a paranormal nature. And in fact, they reported the single most common 
event uh, that people spontaneously reported to them is what they called a crisis apparition, which often occurred in the context of a dream where somebody is dying and or in a crisis and the other person uh, has a, a, an appearance, a vision or a dream or an apparition uh, appears of that individual. Yeah, so that was from the Census of Hallucinations conducted by the Society for Psychical Research with thousands of people participating in the process. And, of course, dreams were one um, committee uh, at the SPR actually dealt with dreams. They had several committees that were, you know, they also dealt with hypnosis. At the time, psychology wasn't dealing with hypnosis. So the crisis apparition in the dream or the grief apparition, the visitation type dream, those were regularly reported by people. Uh, probably not as commonly reported today because most, most people have crisis apparition experiences when they're awake. There are other kinds of very common psychic dreams that actually happen as well. Uh, I had several dreams that changed my life, and one of them involved the death of a great uncle of mine. I had no idea that he had died. I hadn't had any contact with him for 10 years or more. I was off in college, and uh, I hadn't seen him, I think, since I was a child. And But he appeared to me in this dream, Lloyd, and it was so powerful. He spoke to me deeply about my life. I awoke from that dream singing and crying at the same time, which has only ever happened that one time uh, for me. And then I wrote home and said, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. And my mother called me instantly when she got the letter and said, how did you know Uncle Harry just died? You know, that's not an uncommon situation. And what's really interesting is that you knew that that dream was different. You knew, you felt that that was very different, not just the emotionality of waking up in that way, but it sounds like you actually knew that this was not your normal average dream. And that's the one thing I hear from people constantly. Uh, And when I was interviewing people and getting people mailing in their experiences because of surveys I had done in some of my other books, the common thread for how they knew it was a psychic dream was not that they checked it out, that it had come true, but that when they woke up, they remembered it very clearly. It had an emotional impact. It felt different. So that was the thing. The two phrases, it felt different. It was realer than real. Those are the two things that we heard from people. And we still, I still hear that from people today. In fact, I would say that it was realer than real. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. Um, and, uh, you know, dreams in general are just really fascinating. Uh, of course, there's a lot of popular literature about dreams, especially the dream dictionaries, which I think the best people who work with dreams will tell you to ignore as much as possible. Uh, sadly, a lot of those dream dictionaries just simply plagiarize other dream dictionaries. Or it's the author's own internal metaphorical symbology which means that if you are interpreting your dream based on some author's own symbols, you're following, it's kind of like following Freud. I mean, let's face it, Freud had his own issues, and you don't want to necessarily interpret all the symbols in your dream the way Freud might, because you might end up really thinking there's something wrong with you down the road, or something was wrong with you. So it's really about your own internal symbols and what these things mean to you. Now, in my case, I think the psychic dreams that I've had, I have tended to interpret them literally for the most part. And I think that's the best thing to do is to interpret them literally, because they seem to be, like you said, realer than real. Uh, They seem to have a much more literal context. And 
they play out sometimes, especially precognitive experiences, in a very literal fashion. Although, unfortunately, a lot of precognitive dreams, this may be an issue of dream recall or the nature of psi as we know it, that we don't get a complete picture, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. In terms of precognitive. In terms of precognitive, right. That's right. Yeah, um, there was a gentleman by the name of David Booth back in the late 1970s, made the news. Actually, there were some TV uh, clips about him. Uh, he was a computer guy. He was involved in the early days of computer sales. And he had a recurring dream late summer, early fall. I believe it was 1978. might have been 79. My memory, my memory as we get older is a little bit less. Um, my search engine up here is not as good as it used to be. Uh, so he called the FAA because his dream was about a plane, a jumbo jet crashing at O'Hare Airport. He knew approximately the time of day, so it was in the evening, it was dark, uh, approximate weather conditions. He did not know what airline or what, or what flight number it was. He did not see that the flight was pretty full, and it, he saw what the problem was in the aircraft. Uh, years later, uh, thanks to a friend uh, of my dad's at NBC News, I was able to talk to uh, somebody at the FAA. In fact, it was somebody in their public affairs department, who the guy who had actually spoken to David Booth. And I asked him, you know, what did you think? Did you take this seriously? Because the event actually happened the way he described, and the fault in the craft was exactly what he described. And what this gentleman from the FAA told me was that this? they checked him out. He did not have any aeronautics background. The fault he described was deep inside the aircraft. The problem being, uh, they took him very seriously, but he did not know the airline. He did not know the date. And because of the fact that the problem could have been fixed, but it would have taken the aircraft out for 24 hours, with O'Hare getting literally hundreds of flights, many, many planes coming in and out, they couldn't ground all the flights. Just was no way to do it. He said, if we had one more piece of information, we might have been able to actually do something, even send out an alert, but they couldn't do anything. They took it that seriously. Yeah, um, this, it was mainly because of the description that Booth had of the fault in the aircraft. Uh, if it was just the fact, and the, that and the fact that he wasn't saying he was a psychic, I think that probably helped as well. So they took it seriously. Now, unfortunately, today, if somebody did that, made a call, Homeland Security would be on their doorstep probably within the hour, and they would be sequestered for quite some time uh, and probably grilled. And if the event actually then happened, they'd be sus- suspected of sabotage in some way. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in your book that that's one of the real risks of reporting a psychic dream about uh, some disaster or a murder or something of that sort, that uh, you will be uh, under suspicion of being the perpetrator. Yeah, there was a nurse in um, the Colorado, I think it was the Colorado area years ago, who had a dream about a woman who had disappeared uh, and, and where the body was. And she led them, led the sheriff, she called the sheriff, she, she led the sheriff directly to the body. They ended up arresting her because they had no other suspects at the time. And she went to trial. Our, our colleague, Keith Harari, ended up having to testify to explain the process with psychic dreams. You know, it, it's a it's a dangerous thing, too, if... Because we see, if you watch any of the cop shows that have ever had a psychic, it tends to be that the psychic's really a phony and was the killer. So there's that mindset that's out there. Fortunately, we also have a lot of psychics who are verifiably working with the police, not as many as claim it. 
but at least there are some police that are open to it. But it's, it's a very dicey situation, unless you're careful in how you do it. I think it's important to talk about the Dream Research Program uh, at Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn. That's probably the most serious attempt by parapsychologists to look at telepathy in dreams. So the, the sleep lab where they did dream telepathy research in the 70s at Maimonides Hospital in New York, um, the project was run by Dr. Montague Ullman and Dr. Stanley Krippner. Stan is still with us at this point. Uh, Monty has passed on a number of years ago. And Ullman was a psychiatrist who also um, pioneered uh, bringing over a Swedish method of dream work, dream group work, dream work. Uh, so they did studies which I think were in some respects the inspiration for the Gonsfeld research that Chuck Honerton did later, because Chuck was actually working at Maimonides in this, in this group as well. And they found that, and of course for people who are, are watching this don't know how this might work. So someone goes to sleep, the experiment's done that it's, they wait for the person to be in REM state, so they, they know from brain monitoring and from monitoring the person that the sleeper is in a dream state. A, a participant, a sender, is given a randomly selected image and tries to send that as hard as they can to the sleeper. And as the dream state comes to an end, the sleeper is awoken up and asked to describe what they might have dreamed about. You know, at that moment is the time that you'll get actually somebody to remember it. Much later than that, it's just completely gone. Uh, it doesn't make for a good sleep period for that volunteer, <laughs> yeah. but it, it did bring up some really interesting results because uh, for this free response piece, uh, I saw one video clip of a subject who dreamed of a man in a red suit on the beach with an ice cream cone. Uh, very, very happy, jolly guy. Well, it turned out to be a, an image of Santa Claus on the beach in California having an ice cream cone. So he didn't quite identify Santa Claus, which a skeptic would say, well, see, he didn't get it. But I, I don't know, a man in a red suit, a full red suit, not a bathing suit, but a full red suit, a red suit, red clothing on the beach. It's close enough. I'd say that's pretty good. Yeah, that was definitely mm -hmm. a hit. Yeah. And that that's, uh, work has been replicated uh, uh, a number of times, as I recall. In fact, the American Psychologist, the flagship uh, journal of the American Psychological Association, published a uh, study several years later of all the replications and uh, found that uh, overall they're statistically significant. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a really good basis for the, the later Gonsfeld work that happened. Uh, the book Dream Telepathy by Allman and Krippner is available. It's, it's been reprinted. So I highly recommend people pick that up if they have any interest in the subject. We have evidence that uh, people have telepathy in their dreams, but the parapsychological research has moved on. I think Chuck Honerton said, well, is it the dream that's important or is it just the state of relaxation and a quiet mind that uh, led to those successful results? And these days, of course, the, most of the free response clairvoyance and telepathy work is done, I think, in the context of remote viewing where people are just, you know, not necessarily doing anything to enter into an altered state of consciousness. Even the Gonsfeld work that Chuck really pioneered, the auto Gonsfeld, which is still being done in a few places, uh, which involved mild sensory deprivation, 
that you know that idea of mild sensory deprivation does not mimic any real state that we actually have while we're awake. So it really is an artificial state in which people do have seem to have psychic ability, and of course the Gonsfeld replications are many. So there's significant support for the Gonsfeld. But you're right, remote viewing is probably the easier form to use because you don't really need any special equipment to speak of. And that's that's the problem. You know, parapsychology doesn't have a lot of funding. We don't have a lot of help from people in, in other fields. There aren't a lot of sleep labs that would do dream research looking at either precognitive dreaming or telepathic dreaming or some other form. Um, so we end up doing research that seems to be feasible on a lot, a lot of levels. And remote viewing seems to work so well that, uh, and it's, it's real. I mean, it's not it's what people would experience in real life, too. Well, an, another aspect uh, of dreaming, which is very real, is the lucid dream. Yeah. And, you know, lucid dreaming, when I was doing my research for my book years ago, the first version of the book, um, I was surprised to, to find out that Trevor Von Eden, one of our, our predecessors in 1911, had talked about lucid dreaming at an address to a group of psychologists. And he was basically soundly slapped down. You know, lucid dreams don't happen. Celia Green, a parapsychologist in the UK, wrote a book in the 1960s, ignored by the psychological community, because lucid dreaming doesn't happen. So when Stephen LeBurge uh, at Stanford University came along and wanted, to, and, and he knew that lucid dreaming happened because apparently he had lucid dreams, he, I don't know if he intentionally or just simply unconsciously very wisely ignored that anyone in our field had done any of the work prior to this. And he did work in the Stanford Sleep Lab showing that people did actually have lucid dreaming to the point where it was accepted by the psychological community. And after that, he then credited his predecessors in parapsychology. Um, that may, was probably a very wise political move to make because otherwise he would have been completely ignored, uh, which is a very sad commentary on science and especially on psychology in general. And for, for those watching, lucid dreams, of course, are dreams in which you know you're dreaming. In, in effect, you're awake, or at least you're partially awake, and you know you're in a dream. You're in a dream reality. And at that point, uh, it strikes me that it ought to be possible for lucid dreamers to engage in uh, what I, I would call state-specific science. There, there ought to be things that lucid dreamers could do to experiment with the various uh I'm going to call them hyperdimensional realities that uh, occur in the dream. You know, since lucid dreaming allows one, allows a dreamer to control the dream, the landscape, and everything that's happening, uh, it's not only a great opportunity to understand one's own psychology, because if there's a monster there, you can ask the monster, who's part of you, what do you represent? So you can actually get through the, you can ask the things, the symbols, what they represent, and get the direct answers from your unconscious. But it seemed, I agree with you, this would be an opportunity for a dreamer to be a remote viewer, to have, because people talk about having superpowers in their lucid dreaming. They suddenly control flight, and they become Superman. But what about becoming a medium and talking to spirits that you wanted to talk to? What about doing remote viewing while you're there? And we really haven't seen a lot of that kind of work done. 
Well, I, I would predict that sometime, let's say in the next 50 years, somebody's going to take up that project and we'll uh, see uh, people doing lucid dreaming for the very purpose of uh, exploring the realities that are accessible only through dreams. I would love to see that happen. Yeah. I know uh, the people are starting to do some interesting work with meditators. For example, uh, I did an interview not long ago with a researcher who had a group of advanced meditators who, in meditation, could create what was uh, indisti- relatively indistinguishable from a classical near-death experience. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I think as we get more and more understanding of various levels of consciousness, and actually what consciousness is, because that's a big question, uh, we will have a, a better handle on how to bring psi into the equation. Now, there are some psychic dreams that are really life-changing. Well, that's very, very true. Um, there are some psychic dreams that are life-changing for individuals. Uh, David Booth's experience was life-changing for him. Unfortunately, in a negative way, he ended up having survivor's guilt because he was not able to prevent the event from happening. Uh, So that's life-changing in a a not-so-good way. But for other people, it allows them, it has allowed them, especially precognitive dreaming, to avoid consequences, uh, accidents, or events that could have negative impact on them. Uh, And it's not just, you know, not just dreaming, just actually general feelings on the precognitive level can happen as well with that. Uh, but what's interesting to me, again, when I was interviewing people and getting people sending me their dreams, their precognitive and clairvoyant type dreams, what was really interesting is how many of them were just mundane. That it was just about what was going to happen the next day at work, that somebody was going to spill a cup of coffee on them or or something. Somebody was going to say something to them that was out of character and they actually knew what the person was going to say. So we have the life changing ones. Uh, And this speaks to, I think, just generally precognition. Um, The dream state seems to be the best canvas for precognitive experiences, especially major ones. If we could only remember those dreams, because we that's that's dream recall is a big issue. Uh, Then the partial nature, the fragmentary nature of science is a problem, of course. But one of the reasons why the dream state seems to be so fertile for this is that our inhibitions are gone and the rules don't apply. The rules of normal reality don't apply. And we don't have nobody looking over our shoulder at that time saying this is not possible. So we get past that inhibitions, the the inhibitions that we actually have for that. Uh, The thing that's really interesting is that you talk about life changing situations is that people can program themselves to remember their dreams, and they can program themselves for decision-making to to play out a decision in their dream, which can truly affect the outcome of asking your boss for a raise, going for a job interview, or, or any major surgery for that matter. Well, I had such a dream. I suppose you could say I programmed it over 50 years ago. And by virtue of the fact that I'm interviewing you right now for a yeah, YouTube video, that dream has still affected my life. Uh, if, How's that? Well, I'll explain. Uh, back in 1972, 
I was a graduate student at Berkeley in the School of Criminology. I was uh, doing psychotherapy at San Quentin Prison in the psychiatric unit with uh, murderers and sex offenders. Uh, and I was very unhappy because that's depressing work. And I wanted to switch. I wanted to do something uh, positive. I love studying human deviance, but I wanted to study positive forms of human deviance. And there were no opportunities to do that at uh, Berkeley, where I was a student. You, you could study crime and psychopathology all you wanted, but you couldn't study creativity, intuition, psychic functioning, or mysticism. <laughs> So I was agonizing over this, Lloyd, for months and months, uh, and I, no solution seemed to be in sight. And then one day, af after many months, I just knew, I can't say I programmed it, but I knew that I was going to find the answer in a dream, and that that was going to happen that evening. And I went to bed just feeling certain that I, I was going to have the answer. And I had a dream. I woke up from the dream like it's seven in the morning or something exhilarated. I, I thought, this is it. I know I have the answer, but I didn't know what the answer was. I, so I acted out the dream, literally. The dream was that I was visiting friends of mine who lived across town in a married student housing in Berkeley. I knocked on their apartment door, no answer. I knew where they kept the key in my dream. I found the key and let myself into their apartment. And in the dream, in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine called I, E-Y-E, which happened to be a popular magazine back in those days. And that's when I woke up. I was with this feeling like there's the answer. So I, I just put on my tennis shoes, ran across town, uh, five miles to this apartment, knocked on the door. Nobody was home as I had dreamt. And in fact, I did know that they kept a key under the doormat. So I found that key. I let myself in. I walked into the middle of the living room and there was a magazine all by itself in the middle of the living room floor. So I picked it up, started paging through it. And this would be a dream distortion, I suppose. The magazine was called Focus. You probably know what Focus magazine is. You live in the Bay Area. Yeah. KQED, uh, listener-sponsored radio and television. And right, at that right. moment, I made a decision to pursue my interests by getting involved in the non-profit, uh, non-commercial media which was a big decision for me because I did not own a radio or TV in those days. I was a long-haired hippie. I didn't even believe in electronic communication. I thought it was all phony baloney, and, and the only authentic communication I felt was face-to-face. -face. But I changed my mind, and I went over to KPFA in Berkeley, Pacifica mm -hmm. Radio, and said, I'm here to volunteer. And even though I had, at that point, my master's degree, uh, they said, here, sit at this desk, and when you hear the doorbell ring, you push this button and let people in the door. <laughs> and I was happy to do it. And uh, that was the beginning of my work in, in the media in 1972. And within three weeks, 
I had produced a radio program, and they and the program director liked it so much he gave me a regular slot. I found myself all of a sudden sitting across a table with world class experts and all the subjects that fascinated me, and ten thousand people listening in. So uh, that's what gave me Lloyd the confidence to create uh, an individual interdisciplinary doctoral major at Berkeley in parapsychology because I didn't think the university had many resources, but now I had uh, personal access to everyone who was on a book tour coming through the San Francisco area. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. And that that very minor, I'd say that the eye to focus is an incredibly minor dream distortion, uh, highly suggestive. I mean, I Eyes have to focus, but you had to look. I, when you were saying it was going to be another magazine, I thought it was going to be a look magazine or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But focus certainly makes great sense. Uh, yeah, that That's amazing. changed my life, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, um, people have dreams that absolutely do that. Um, dreams that they follow, dreams that they just, that just inspire them. It, it's... The, the dream is an amazing thing. And, you know, dream recall itself is an amazing thing. Uh, I talk to people every so often who claim never to remember. They said, I don't dream at all. And actually what they're saying, and they don't know that they're saying, and I have to explain to them, is they don't remember their dreams. They don't remember any of their dreams. And that's actually an easy thing to remedy because you can go to sleep at night or as you're going to sleep and tell yourself to remember at least the dreams that you're going to pick up on. And then if you have a way of recording those dreams... You reinforce that, and it becomes greater and greater and greater recall. When I was writing the book, uh, I immediately, without even programming myself, started remembering more dreams that I ever had. Because my intention was to write a book on dreams. Clearly, I needed to remember more dreams. The day that I finished and turned it in, the manuscript, into the publisher, that all stopped. It was time oh. for me to move on to something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, um there was a famous dream study done, I think, gosh, the 19, early part of the 20th century by, I believe it was Dunn, J.W. Dunn, I think was. Oh, yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His book was called An Experiment with Time. And he was a philosopher and author who um, had a pretty good mathematics background as well. He wrote about time uh, with J.B. Priestley, and he wrote this wonderful book where he had had precognitive dreams, so he did a study of his own precognitive dreams over a period of time. The book is still, I believe it's been reprinted. It's a a really exceptional book. Um, What's sad is his other books have not been reprinted, including one about parallel universes called The Serial Universe, uh, uh, which has some implications also for the dream state as well. But Dunn was a kind of a pioneer in self-study of one's dreams. And as I recall, what he found is he analyzed his dreams to see how much the dreams were influenced by events in the past and how much they were influenced by, apparently, uh, through retrocausality, events from the future. And uh, he seemed to find it was about equal, as I recall. Yeah, that's, that's my recollection as well. I mean, he really, because he was someone very interested in time itself, not just in dreams, and not just in precognition. He was very interested in time itself. So it's a really interesting uh, book to read for that very reason, because it's not just about precognitive dreams or a study in that. It's really his own experiment without the flow of time. 
Well, it certainly suggests that the dream world gets us closer to um possibly to to a universe in which uh causal chains of events are coming in two directions from the past and the future, which is maybe one reason why dreams seem so uh, illogical from the normal waking consciousness. That could very well be plus if that's what's actually happening, you know, it's if you have both things happening in dream, information from the past and the future, plus real time from distant locations, from other informa- locations, yeah. you have it's going to be kind of hard to keep track of time <laughs> of the flow of the of the the uh, the chart that you actually have mm-hmm. the timeline. We certainly have data in parapsychology that. Uh, would lead one to suggest that dreams are at least amenable to information from distant locations and yes. both in space and in time, both in the past and in the future. And we also have that evidence that shows with precognition, whether it's through dreams or through waking state, that we have the ability to influence the future. Uh, I mean, let's, let's take the, that ex- example I had with David Booth. If he had the information about the flight, the FAA was ready to take, at least the certain people of the FAA were ready to take him seriously. Had that happened, that plane probably would have been taken out of service and it never would have crashed. That's an interesting possibility. Yeah. Uh, another use that I've heard for psychic dreams is the exploration of uh, past lifetimes. It's, there's, there's no question that there's, a way you can look at dreams about history, because people have dreams about history. Uh, again, this is about a feeling, too. People will wake up and say, I had this dream about being in the French Revolution or some other era of time. And that could, you know, you also do have to look at what might have given the suggestion to that, just like we would with any waking reincarnation, seemingly past recall. But there's that element of it was realer than real, it felt different than just a dream about the French Revolution. So uh, it's maybe suggestive of either reincarnation or perhaps some form of retrocognition. So people picking up on literally reaching into the past and picking up on the past. And, and of course, there could be all any number of psychological reasons why a of course. A, a, a dream of that sort could uh, uh, satisfy a, a particular psychological need, having nothing to do with either retrocognition or past lifetimes. In which case, most people, because I've talked to a lot of people who have had historical dreams, and I've had historical dreams too. Uh, although my historical dreams have been more like what's in the movies, so they're not really historically accurate. <laughs> And that's because historical films are not historically accurate and they're missing a lot of information. Um, and that's, but none of those dreams felt like more than a dream. They didn't have that context, that feeling behind them, the knowingness. Um, and that's the difference. And when I talk to some folks and I've talked to people who have had these kinds of past life dreams, but they also tell me typically they've had other dreams about history and they didn't feel the same. So we have to kind of look at the subjective context, which makes it very difficult, especially since we don't have real factual information coming through those dreams. Yeah, I suppose another clue might be if it's a repetitive dream. That might be. Then again, uh, you know, someone is truly interested in a particular era of era of history, 
and has read a lot and seen a lot of movies, been exposed to a lot of information, that's their hobby or focus. Uh, Civil War reenactors, for example, I would not be surprised if they don't have a lot of dreams about the Civil War. Then again, some of them might feel that that was a past life that they had, which is why they were drawn to being a Civil War reenactor. Well, and and I'm jumping around a bit, but I think it's important to bring up uh, the possibility of mutual dreaming, that people can enter into each other's dreams uh, sort of in a telepathic manner. Yeah, people who have a really close relationship, a strong emotional bond, will often report having uh, mutual dreams, having telepathic dreams that are pretty much dreaming the same thing. And those kinds of experiences are very interesting because if they've been reported separately, which is rare, that's the problem, is that they don't really get reported separately. They get reported like, well, we talked to each other and we had the same dream. Yeah. But if they were reported separately, we'd have a much better understanding of what's really going on. But very clearly, people have these similar dreams or the same dream. If it's a couple and they've been exposed to the same stimuli, it is possible that they had a very similar dream because of what happened to them together in the daytime. For example, people uh, at that um, mass shooting in San Francisco that you mentioned at, at 101 California Um, People had similar dreams afterwards, and that was not telepathic. That was due to the stimulus uh, and the trauma. Many years ago, I interviewed a lady named Linda Lane Magalon, who had written a book called Mutual Dreaming, and and she has groups of people who who, who come together for that purpose, and she reports that the the mutual dreams they have are like parties. They all kind of uh, agree to meet in the dream, and they each report various fragments, but it seems as if the the overall picture is, is like we're getting together and having fun. You know, I've talked to people over the years who are in dream work groups. You know, they get together and work through their dreams. And some of those folks establish friendships. And then they will talk about having these kind of party dreams where they're all programming the same dream overnight. And they claim to be meeting in the dream at that point. Well, you can do many of the same things with hypnosis. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, As long as you can get past people's inhibitions and let the unconscious, let the imagery flow. There's no question that can happen, yeah. yeah. The, the difference, of course, is not everybody is able to go into a deep hypnotic right. trance, whereas right. the dream state is really, in many ways, akin to a deep trance state. It is. It's a very specific state, uh, brain state that we have, and it's akin to that deep trance. You know, people, there's that old adage that some people have credited Albert Einstein with, which is not really where it comes from, that we only use 10% of our brain. But in reality, uh, studies have shown that we're using a lot more than that. In fact, our brains are hyperactive when we're dreaming. It's not a quiet state. Uh, it's a very, very active state. And so it's a, very, it's a very different state than relaxation states. Although the body's relaxed, there's much more going on there with consciousness in general. That's quite interesting because I I know there's a lot of new research coming out suggesting that uh, psychedelic drugs, which also induce a very profound altered state of consciousness, uh, but that's a state in which the brain is actually less active. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, I hadn't heard that particular piece. Yeah, very interesting. 
I mean, people are using uh, that research to argue for uh, the filter theory of the mind, that the mind is a filter of consciousness rather than a generator of consciousness. But in, in the case of dreams, if the brain is much more active, it would seem as if the brain is generating that. Yeah, either generating that or it, the resources needed to create the visual auditory experience um, for that person's consciousness require the, the brain to, to ramp up a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Well, we still have so much to learn about uh, dreams and dreaming. As you pointed out at the beginning of our study, even in the uh, scientific fields of neurology and psychology, there isn't clear agreement as to what dreams are. There is not, and nor is there a clear agreement as to what consciousness is. It's, it's, uh, it's a mystery, and, you know, I had this conversation via Twitter with someone who was claiming that there's no evidence for certain types of experiences, like ghost experiences and such. And when I asked him to describe, I defined consciousness, or a ghost or an apparition as consciousness after death. And I, what's your definition of consciousness? And he came back with cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am, which is not a definition whatsoever, and it's totally subjective. And when I pointed that out, he said, well, if you're going to include subjective experiences... I said, well, that's all we have to study emotions with. That's all we have to study dreams with to speak of. You can't tell. Currently, we don't know what a person is dreaming except from their subjective report. We know that that they are dreaming, but not what they were dreaming. And the same thing with thinking, the same thing with emotions. We only can observe. We, We don't have the ability to turn subjective into the objective at this point. Yes, I mean, people keep hoping eventually we'll be able to have machines that can read your mind, right. but we're, we're a long way from that. Right. Well, there, there are there's some recent studies that show that, they, that certain, uh, they have devices that can pick up certain thoughts, certain patterns, but we're not anywhere near where you can slap on a helmet, go to sleep, and have your dream recorded on some sort of video monitor some way. That, yeah, that would be quite interesting. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, while I'm mentioning it, or while we're talking about psychic dreams, uh, there was a movie, I believe it was called Dreamscape, uh, many yes. years ago with Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid, that's correct, yes. Yeah, in that, they, ha- they had technology in which they could actually enter people's dreams. And there have been similar you know, films since that time. Uh, and in that Inception. case, Inception. Yeah, uh, Inception's another one, yeah. Um, the thing about Dreamscape that was interesting, because that, that turned into a political thriller, like a, a, a murder thriller, <laughs> because somebody was trying to kill the president by entering his dreams, and Dennis Quaid had to go in and, and save his life. Because apparently, if you die in your dreams, according to that movie, you're dead. Although we know that that's actually not the case based on people's experiences. Well, we don't know that everybody... We wouldn't really know unless somebody's ghost came back and said, I died in my dream. In fact, it's quite amazing the things that you can do in a dream that would normally kill you and you survive. I wonder if there's a lesson in that. Yeah, you know, I've had conversations with people who say that, you know, I'm afraid if I have a falling dream, if I hit the ground, I'm going to die. 
I know I've I've hit the ground multiple times, <laughs> and because I grew up watching Looney Tunes cartoons, I I absolutely remember getting out of the Lloyd shaped hole in the ground. <laughs> For the you know Wiley Coyote can do it, I can do it too. Well, Lloyd Auerbach, this has been a fascinating conversation as always. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you and uh, to share the wealth of experience that you've accumulated over many decades studying these phenomena. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure at my ends, too. Thank you for being with me, Lloyd. 